Podcast Network. Welcome to the podcast with a thousand faces. I'm John Booker, creative director for the Joseph Campbell Foundation. When you talk about important voices in culture, it's pretty easy to overestimate the impact that somebody really has. It's the rare case that someone can actually match the reputation that precedes them. People are rarely those towering figures that they've been built up to be. But Jack Cornfield is that rare person. Jack has been one of the most significant teachers in bringing Buddhist mindfulness to the West. He is an author, a speaker, and a founding teacher at Spirit Rock Meditation Center. After he graduated Dartmouth College in 1967, Jack joined the Peace Corps and worked as a tropical medicine team lead throughout the Mekong River Valley. He was trained as a Buddhist monk in the monasteries of Thailand, India, and Burma. And if all that weren't enough, he holds a PhD in clinical psychology. Jack is a father, a husband, and an activist. His books have been translated into more than 20 languages around the world and have sold more than a million copies. Jack was a friend of Joseph Campbell's, and he still speaks about his time with Joe and the importance of his work. Tyler Lapkin of the Joseph Campbell Foundation sat down and talked with Jack about myth, Buddhism, and the time he and Campbell spent together. Let's take a listen as Tyler and Jack invite us all into the circle. So, Jack, welcome to the podcast with the, the Thousand Faces. Let me start out by saying that you've certainly had a tremendous impact on me in my own life through your writing and your teaching. And I've had the fortune and the privilege of being in retreats with you. I'm also a current student in your mindfulness, meditation, teacher certification program. And what I'm trying to say is that it's really a gift for me to be able to interview about another one of my heroes. So thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Yeah, thank you, Tyler. I'm so glad you're in that teacher training program, the Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Certification. It's one of the things I'm happiest about in my life right now. We've got 2,000 people in your cohort in 70 countries around the world. And I get messages from people who went through the last one, like I'm a woman in Lahore, Pakistan, running a clinic for mothers and children and we use this all the time and it makes such a difference and I go okay this is training and mindfulness and compassion is so needed and having it spread around or learned by people like you makes me happy so thank you well thank you it's really such a gift to be in the program and and to be working with my cohort of other students I mean we bonded so much over the past year and a half through also our work with our mentor so uh it's ongoing and I'm just beginning our practicum, which will also be exciting to actually be teaching this stuff out in the world. So this is a podcast about Joseph Campbell and you mention Joe and your relationship with him in your books and your talks. And it sounds like you've definitely had some personal experience with him. How did you come to know Joe? I met him at Esalen. It was the period was in the 1970s. I went to be at Esalen 
for a month or two months a year, about 15 years in a row, starting in 1973. And Joe was there teaching in these month-long or six-week programs together with Stanislaw Groff and his wife, Christina, later, first with Joan Halifax Groff. And there was a, a coterie of people there. Michael Harner, who started the Worldwide Shamanic Training Network, was part of it. Ramdas came. In fact, we might have a picture of Ramdas and Joe Campbell and Stan Groff and myself and others. And I just felt privileged as an ex, a young guy who'd been a Buddhist monk for a time teaching to be with these elders who respected each other. And part of what was also beautiful is that Stan Groff, as an incredible visionary, had this map of the human psyche that was enormous, that captured everything. And of course, Joseph Campbell was the map of the myths of, of the mind and of humankind. And they met together, and I got to be part of those conversations. And some of it was, of course, just Joseph's own magic, because he would give a lecture on the chakras. And there would be the slides and the images from primarily the Indian tradition, but other places, the Taoists. And the level of his, the breadth of his understanding, my mind would kind of open with each chakra in a new way, with feelings and, and so forth. So he carried not just the myth, but he also carried in some way this profound connection with an enthusiasm for what the myths opened up in, in the mind. And there was this coterie of people together who were doing that, and I just felt privileged to be part of it. How did you find yourself at Esalen with Stan Groff? What, what led you there? Well, when I came back from the monastery, I didn't really know what to do with myself. I'd been in Asia for about five years. And uh, I came back in robes and that didn't work very well because there really wasn't a monastery that I could be and it didn't, at that time, didn't really exist. There were a couple of little urban ones, but not like the forest monastery I trained in. So I had to disrobe. And then I thought, well, what do I do next? Pretty much the only thing I knew how to do was be a student. I'd gone from Dartmouth into the Peace Corps to do work on village medical teams in the Mekong River Valley in the monastery. So I said, well, I'll go to graduate school. I think I'll study psychology. Maybe I can figure out what happened to me in the monastery. <laughs> so I started graduate training and then I needed to get some work and met with some folks in Cambridge. I was in Boston and they said, you know, there's an Esalen-like place here. I was intrigued. What's happening that the new things of Ram Dass is, was coming through and teaching and so forth. So I went there and I said, can I volunteer? And they said, sure. And I volunteered for a bit. And they said, you know, you seem a bright enough fellow. Maybe you can help us with the programming. So I thought to myself, who do I most want to see? Well, Fritz Perls died, but okay, there's Stanislaw Groff and there's a whole coterie of amazing figures at that time. And I said, I'll invite them to Boston for our, <laughs> and I did. And as a result, began to teach together with Stan, which I have had done for 45 years now. And he was such a visionary that he brought in Nobel Prize winning chemists and physicists and, and systems theorists and deep depth psychologists, all examining the breadth of consciousness that it opened through his psychedelic research. And that's now 
of course, as we see in resurgence. He was the last person to be able to do legitimate LSD research at Johns Hopkins before everybody got frightened and it all got shut down. In any case, so Esalen was a little, a melting pot of visionaries that allowed many of these techniques from gestalt therapy to different kinds of body work and so forth that people take for granted now in at least parts of our culture were born there or incubated there. And Joseph Campbell was part of that. And he was one of the kind of respected, beloved elders. And then, of course, knowing Joan Halifax, she also worked closely with Joe in New York when he was doing one of the last big books he was working on. So, so I, had, I had other connections. So a little bit of, of my background, I was brought up Italian Catholic at my mother's insistence, and my father's Jewish. And as I became older, I became more interested in Taoism through my study of Chinese medicine. I'm an acupuncturist and Hinduism through practicing yoga. And uh, ultimately, the exposure to the Eastern philosophy led me to study Buddhism. And for a while, I had a really hard time reconciling all of these traditions until I discovered Joe's work. And then through the understanding of how mythology functions, um, things became much more clear. So I'm curious about how your time with Joe and how his work uh, helped to influence your own understanding of myth and how it, if it has contributed to, to how you teach. Well, it was partly time with Joe, but also with people that were deeply influenced by him. James Hillman became a good friend and I taught with him. And then Michael Mead, who I see as the successor in a way, as the greatest living mythologist. I'm not in that field, but Michael is extraordinary. And so I began to hear that there were these huge visionary ways to understand who we are as human beings, and that they came in myth and story. Roger Walsh, who's a friend of mine, MD, PhD, was on the faculty of Stanford Medical School, written a whole lot of books because he's been interested in this and also done tremendous amount of inner exploration, read through the entire encyclopedia of world religions from Ahura Mazda all the way to Zoroaster. And when he was finished as a, as a scholar, but also a meditator and shamanic practitioner, I said, so what did you learn? And he said, I saw these hundred or more major religions, each of which had an origin story each of which had a story about how we were supposed to treat one another, each of which had a story about how the world would end, all of the stories somewhat different. And then he smiled and he said, and I realized that they were simply stories that we place upon the mystery, that we tell ourselves as a way of orienting ourselves in the, the vastness of the creative life, the creative principle. And so... It influenced my teaching a lot. I'm naturally somebody who is polyamorous in my work, at least, not maybe in my relationship. I'm at a blessed, happy marriage with Trudy Goodman. But I've always been interested in putting pieces together, maybe not as grand as uh, Joseph Campbell's magnificent work. But the first book I did in the 1970s, I took 12 different masters in Thailand and Burma to try to introduce the deep practices that I found in Southeast Asia to people in the West. 
And prior to that, the main books in Buddhism, they could have made one small shelf. Now there's a whole library of them. But we're primarily about Tibetan Buddhism, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, or about Zen, D.T. Suzuki's books, or, or Shinryu Suzuki Roshi's and Mind Beginner's Mind, but not a lot. And very little about mindfulness and compassion and Theravada. I put these 12 masters' teachings together in a book, How You Practice, and I put the ones that were the most different next to each other. So one guy says, you must practice like your hair is on fire and throw yourself, in a sense, die before you die, all of that archetypal initiation that Joseph Campbell wrote about so much. And then the next master says, you will not attain freedom through your efforts. But only seeing what's true, you must relax and open and not strive for anything. And I found it tremendously helpful for me and for the people that I've then worked with and eventually taught to realize that there are different avenues that open the heart and open the mind. And there isn't just one channel. And some of us learn through our bodies and movement and like, like Gene. So some of us learn through study in the mind. And here's Joseph Campbell doing the gloss on Finnegan's Wake, incredible scholarship of, of that. Some of us learn through the heart and can some learn out in nature or, or through sacred medicine. But there's something that we know that we're returning to. Here's a tiny poem from Juan Ramon Jimenez. He writes, it's called Yo No Soy Yo in Spanish. I'm this one walking beside me whom I do not see, whom at times I manage to visit and whom at other times I forget, who remains calm and silent while I talk, who forgives gently when I hate, who walks outdoors when I'm inside, who will remain standing when I die. And it speaks to some place in us that's much bigger than the small separate self and this idea that here I am, the skin encapsulated eagle was Alan Watts's word for it. And the world is out there. And in fact, we are part of the, this great mystery that Joseph Campbell illuminated in his work. And we all know it. We forget it, but we know it when we walk in the high mountains or when we're there at the birth of a child or at the mystery of somebody dying when spirit leaves as silently as a falling star, and yet something is profoundly different from one moment to another. We know it when we take psychedelics or sacred medicine or make love. I mean, there's a, and all of a sudden we realize, okay, it's not just the prosaic life that we live that has its place, but that there's something so much bigger. And part of Joseph Campbell's work was really an invitation for us to see that and to see the multifaceted nature of, of humanity and human consciousness. That's beautiful, Jack. Thank you for that. I want to go back to your other question before, just to say something. Coming back from the monastery, because, let's see how to say it, the mystic has to be wedded. Angelus Arian, who was another person, part of that Esalen group, she was a Basque mystic and shaman and professor and so forth, who wrote a book called Walking the Mystical Path with Practical Feet. She was a great mystic. But I came back and, all right, I had all these amazing kind of meditative experiences. But then I got back into a relationship with this woman that I met in Cambridge that I'd known. 
And I found myself back in the same delusions and fears and struggles and the things that one, as a young man who was pretty clueless about relationship, and I realized, oh my gosh, I thought I was so calm and chill, and now I get in a relationship with this woman, and all this old stuff comes up. And the horror of it was that I could see it more clearly. <laughs> so I started to study psychology. I got in therapy. And there's some way that the big task, I think it's Joseph Campbell's words, to become transparent to the transcendent, but that yeah. it actually has to be embodied in our lives. And that's what I've spent my life trying to both figure out how to do, how to live it, and have that great perspective and even some humor about it all like isn't this an amazing dance we're in and at the same time to bring it alive in how i live how i move through the world the things i care about the things that i tend so some combination of those two well to kind of pick up on that you often joke that ram das once told you that you tell too many stories and when I listen to you give talks about meditation and about Buddhism and about life, like Joe, you're, you're very much able to go into the details and to the significance of the, the practices and traditions, which are often very detail-oriented and complex. And in all your talks, you incorporate stories, you know, lots of stories. And for me, your teachings are so relatable and expansive and transformative because how you use story and also your understanding of myth to teach us about the human condition. I'm just curious, how do you, why do you choose to focus on storytelling and how do you choose the stories that you tell? So it's a, it's a great question. And, and part of it is kind of mysterious because I was drawn to story. When I heard Ramdas teach in 1972, whenever I'd come back from being in the monastery, I was mesmerized. I went, oh, not only can you learn these practices, and my teacher in Thailand was a pretty good storyteller, that wasn't his main mode. I was completely carried away by the power of the stories to engage, to open, to touch the heart, and so forth. And I thought, oh, this is a gift. I want to be able to do that. Because I felt so connected to, and it felt like it was a channel when you heard a story that was a meaningful, deep story. It's as if a doorway into the garden opened and you could go into this whole new place. And so here's one line I'll read to you that's very famous. In the middle of the journey of life, I found myself in a dark wood where the straight way was lost. And that's the opening line of, from Dante, uh, the divine comedy one of the greatest works of literature in the Western canon. And that one line says to all of those of you who are somewhere between 25 and 65 or something, hey, in the middle of life, you're going to find yourself in this dark wood where the straightway is lost, and you have to figure this out. And in one line of the beginning of a story, it's like, oh, what's going to happen? Where am I? What is this? So story has this incredible power in that way to kind of open our psyche. And for me, when I tell stories, I want them to have an emotional valence. I want them um, not just to register as this is a lovely story, 
but for someone to join me in the story and join what happens in there so that it begins to touch their heart, open it, let them feel things in a deeper way and embody it. And that has tremendous power to it. I mean, I'll tell you a story and we're just as an illustration of it. So there was an older man in his early 80s who came into the clinic one morning to get the stitches taken out where he'd hurt his hand. And the nurse said, you know, there's a long line, you're gonna have to wait for a while. And he said, can you see me? It won't take long and I have an appointment. I have to go right after this. And she looked at him and she said, all right, I'll, I'll do it now. So she started to take out the stitches. And she said, so what's your appointment? Is it another doctor's appointment? He said, no, I go every morning to have breakfast with my wife. And she asked, well, where's your wife? She's in an assisted living or nursing home. Is she okay? Yeah, she's okay. And you go every morning? Yeah, she has Alzheimer's. And then the nurse said, oh, well, it must be a comfort to her that you go. She must be happy to see you. And he said, actually, she hasn't recognized me for five years. And the nurse said, so you go every morning, even though she doesn't know who you are? And he smiled and patted her hand and said, she doesn't know who I am, but I know who she is. And in that story, that little story is like a treasure house. It sort of opens. How do we treat each other beyond the identities, the, the separate identities or the ways that culture puts on us? What's our real heart connection or what matters to us at the end of life? And stories become, again, a gateway into a whole new garden of feeling and understanding and tears and beauty. So I love them. And of course, Muriel Ruckheiser, the great poet, she put it succinctly. She said, the universe is made of stories, not atoms. That that's how we construct our world. Right. Stories are, are what we have when everything else seems to, to be failing us. Yeah. We can choose to lean in to these stories that can open us to, to what it is to be alive. Absolutely. So expanding on that, stories and mythology they can open our hearts and expand and, and deepen our knowledge of the world when they're understood as metaphoric of the potentials and the powers that we have within us. And stories can also be destructive when they hold and, and enforce familial or cultural or habitual unconscious beliefs that run in the background of lives. And in your book, The Wise Heart, you have this saying that I always come back to, so when we drop below our stories, we're led back to the mystery of the here and now. And my question to you here is, myth and story can help us to open and help us to be in accord with what is. And the practice of meditation can help us to bring awareness to and cut through the stories that don't serve us. So how do you see the usefulness of each and how do you approach them when you teach and when you practice? Meditation helps us, invites us to quiet our mind and open our heart, really simply, because we can get lost in our thoughts and plans and, and fears and memories and strategies. And we all know this, you know, that there's this stream of thoughts so much so that 
in many cases, we can walk down the street and not see anything because we're so lost in our thoughts or drive somewhere and say, how did I, who drove? How did I get there? And it's all the more so in now in our screen culture, we're not only in these thoughts, but we're in the thoughts interacting with all the stuff on the screens in our phone. And yet there's another dimension of humanity. We know it. You can't love in your thoughts, not completely. You can't see the budding of a, of a rose unless you're actually there with the rose. You can imagine it and picture it in some way. And imagination is an amazing thing. But if you want to live this human incarnation, it also requires that you pay attention in a different dimension than the stories that you keep telling yourself. So meditation allows, first, allows us to be here in a way so that, as one of the poets said, the leaves on the trees become like pages in the holy books. That if you get quiet enough on a spring morning and you walk out, the mystery is just presenting itself to you. It's always there, but it's like, okay, wake up. It's really here. <laughs> the earth is renewing itself no matter what you messy human beings do. So you quiet the mind and open the heart so you can see and hear. But it's not enough. Because as you do, you notice that along with the connection to the reality of the present, what's here with you, and the present is the only place you can love, actually. Love in the past is a memory. Love in the future is a fantasy. You can only love that rose, I said, or that whatever is in front of you in your garden or on your street, the, the leaves popping out of the trees in the springtime in these remarkable ways, you can only love a person when you're actually there in the moment. But then, because our human incarnation also includes this meaning-making mind that creates stories, learns stories, tells stories, it protects us, it orients us, it helps us stay connected with one another in the world. As you quiet the mind and open the heart, you start to see what are the frequent stories that you tell. And a lot of them are reruns, I have to say. It's sometimes you sit in meditation and it's like you're stuck in Motel 6 in a kind of crummy room all night long and the shopping channel is on and you can't turn it off. Or whether it's the shopping or the violence or the, the reworking of some trauma that happened in your past or your anxiety about the future, and you can't stop it. So once you quiet, then you can see the patterns of thought. And the beautiful thing is, then you also realize that you can choose. You can say, okay, this thought doesn't have my best interest in mind. This is a thought of anxiety and fear and, or revenge and so forth. That's not a very helpful thought. Oh, these ones, these are thoughts of, let me go back and reconnect. Let me apologize. Let me bring my best forward in this. Those thoughts are thoughts that lead us to deeper connection and greater care or creative thoughts. And it's only the fact that you can become the loving awareness, the loving witness of this thought machine in the mind that freedom becomes available to you. Otherwise, you're just caught in habit. And so it's a tremendous gift. And Thich Nhat Hanh talks about watering seeds. He said, when you go into the garden, Depending which seeds you water and tend, those are the ones that will grow. If you water the seeds of anger or revenge or fear and anxiety or estrangement or, or 
grasping in different ways, they will grow. If you water the seeds of caring attention, if you water the seeds of generosity and connection, those will grow. It's simply the, the way that the universe is constructed for us. And in a way, we're creating our own myth as we go along. And it may be sometimes in a much smaller way than the grand myths of Joseph Campbell described, but we're living it in some very important and immediate way. And which one, which story do we follow? Yeah, I've, I have a bunch of questions for you, but I want to fit one in that, that I think is appropriate for, for what you just said. We find ourselves in this very interesting time to be alive. We're hopefully at the end stage of, of a pandemic that's been going on for over two years. And there's ongoing war and political discord and, and heartbreaking gun violence and, and school shootings. And all of this is occurring with, with the background of, of climate change. And because of, of this uncertainty, we can see how people retreat into their tribes and, and enclaves and echo chambers, telling these divisive and fearful stories. And the power of myth, Joe talks about how the only myth that's going to be worth thinking about in the future is the one that's talking about the planet and everybody on it, not one group or another, but the planet. And he says that myths come from the same places as dreams and we can't predict what they're going to be. But as you teach, you know, we can cultivate awareness and compassion. So how do you recommend we go about seeing each other and communicating with each other in a way that we can create more beautiful and inclusive stories. Mm -hmm. Well, I love the, I love the feeling behind your question because we're all in this together, whether again, it's the pandemic or climate change or, you know, the increasing gun violence and the divisive stories and it's heartbreaking. And for some it's, brings despair and fear and anxiety and not sleeping well as the poet wendell berry says when i awake in the night with fear for my children or grandchildren and many of us do we need a different story and that's not just a, a sweet story to say because who we become is follows our, our actions follow our stories and our belief just as you're pointing to i think of my friend and colleague and teacher, this Cambodian monk named Mahagosananda, who was nominated for the Nobel Prize a number of times. Um, and we practiced together in forest monasteries. Uh, and he was in Thailand when the genocide happened in Cambodia, where 25 or 30% of the population was killed by the Khmer Rouge. 19 members, all 19 members of his family were killed. His village was burned. And, and I went with him to these huge refugee camps. People poured out of Cambodia into Thailand to escape the Khmer Rouge. And there are these little huts and, you know, 50,000, 100,000 refugees in each camp. And he went in and asked the UNHCR, the refugee commissioner, can I make a Buddhist temple here? got permission and what the temple was was just a big wooden platform with a 
altar at the end and some little bit of a roof on it in the middle. And then he said, because people may need this again. And uh, the day it was to open, we went through the camp ringing this big temple gong, inviting people to come who hadn't been able to do this for 10 years or something like that. And we weren't sure if anyone would come because the Khmer Rouge underground in the camps said that if anybody goes to this temple, when they're released from the camp, they'll be shot. So it was, it was a dangerous thing. 25,000 people poured into the square anyway at the sound of the bell. And he sat up there with his microphone and in his robes, gazing out. And you could see the faces of the trauma of people, a grandmother and her two surviving grandchildren, you know, or an uncle and one nephew, and people who'd been through the horrors that we now know also are happening in this world so visibly. And I thought, what can he say? And he looked out and he put his hands together and he began to chant in Khmer, Cambodian, and in Pali, like Sanskrit, one of the first verses of the Buddhist texts that goes, Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And he began to chant those verses over and over. Hatred never ceases by hatred over and over. And pretty soon, people who hadn't been in a temple, who lost their connection with the Buddhist world from the Khmer, they began to weep and they put their hands together and they all chanted with him over and over and over again. And I realized that what he was doing was offering a truth, and maybe you could call it a story, that was even bigger than their suffering. No matter what you've been through and the horrors of it that had happened to his family, hatred never ends by hatred, but by love alone is healed. So that's the power of the story that we need. And we need people like Mahagosananda and others to pass that story along to say there is another way. We don't have to go down this road. There is another possibility in our culture to live in in the truth that hatred never ends by hatred, to live in the truth that we care for this earth because it's us. It's not me and the other person, but it's actually our family. You mentioned your friend Michael Mead earlier. He's one of my favorite mythologists. Yeah. And he talks about the innate gifts that each of us have to offer to the world. And he calls our unique gift our, our genius. Yeah. And he says that uh, to find our genius, our gifts, we have to be in contact with our soul, which is always connected to what he calls the soul of the world. And the soul of the world, there's always a piece for each of us to do. Can't do the whole thing, but we each have our unique gifts to give. And I find that both in meditation and, and myth, our tools can help us to awaken to that connection to our, to our soul and to our genius, uh, especially when, when we're lost and, and without purpose, uh, which is a situation that Joe might call a wasteland existence. And Joe's advice to get out of the wasteland was to follow your bliss. 
how do you advise your students? How do you advise us when we seem like we don't know what our gifts are and we don't know what to contribute to, to all of the, the needs and the suffering that, that's going on in the world? Well, one of the things that I love is that often when people ask questions, as you are asking thoughtful ones, that you embed the answer to the question in your own question. And you say, well, I can't do everything, but I can do something and I want to feel right. Also, you know, when th this is a famous passage from Joe Campbell, Follow Your Bliss, but it's a little bit taken out of context. And you probably know this, that the context that it was spoken in, he was talking about Satyapananda, which are the three different dimensions of um, connection with the, the call it the, the divine mystery. Um, sure. And one is truth. And one is consciousness. This is what we are. We are consciousness, you know, displaying itself in all these amazing ways that you're not your body and you're not your feelings. You have a body, but you'll see when you die, you'll float out of your body and go, wow, that was an intense incarnation, you know, or whatever. You'll see. But in any case, that's not who we are. We are, we are consciousness and we're part of the collective consciousness. So then such ananda means bliss, but it really means the, the bliss of knowing that you're a part of everything, that that's who you really are. Alice Walker wrote of one character, one day I was sitting there like a motherless child, like, like I was, and it come to me that feeling of being a part of everything, she went on, and I knew if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed, and I laugh, and I cry, and I run all around the house. In fact, when it happened, you can't miss it. So there's something that we know that's much bigger than the separate story of our life that we're embedded in, that we are actually. And that's kind of, that's the first place that Joseph was pointing to was Satyatananda was this enormous reality um, that we're a part of. And then how do we bring it alive? As you say, what's our place? when we sense that, all right, you know, you cut a tree, your arm will bleed, we're all together, then you can't save all the trees of the world, but you can do what Wangari Mathai did, who won the Nobel Prize for the Green Belt in Kenya and East Africa. She started planting trees. One, two, she got other people, 10, 50, eventually 51 million trees by the time she got her Nobel Prize. She was thrown in prison, which of course is part of the uh, curriculum for many Nobel Peace Prize winners, uh, but she was undaunted. And so you do the same. You look out into the garden of your life and you see whether it's literally tending to the trees or whether it's a, a political action or whether it's healing or whether it's your work as an artist or creating a conscious business or raising children in a way that makes a new generation that's caring and conscious and the very particulars of your life become infused with that sense of the sacred of the holiness of things there's this there's a public monument on the corner of fourth street downtown louisville to a mystical experience from thomas merton where he left the monastery and they're all being pious and meditating, doing what monks did in, that, in Gethsemane Abbey. 
And he was walking down the street and said, all of a sudden, I could see the secret beauty behind the eyes of everybody that passed, the holiness that was there in everyone that I've been striving to find in the monastery. And here it was, walking down the shopping street. He said, the big problem was that I wanted to fall down and worship each person as they went by. And now there's a placard, okay, Thomas Merton's mystical experience at this corner. But this is partly the invitation in some way to see this and to feel, yes, we're part of this great mystery. And then we get a hand in the garden. We get to actually choose to reach out and mend the things that we can mend, to reach out and nourish the things that we can. And no one can tell you what that is. You actually have to experiment and, and try to do it and not take it, you know, not take yourself too seriously because it's not your job to fix the world. The world is the world. It's your job to mend and tend and bring beauty into the world where you are. I love that, Jack. Thank you so much. Yeah, it seemed like you said, you know, Joe's, Joe's follow your bliss is often taken out of context. And Michael Mead would often say, when you follow your bliss, you're also following your blisters. So when you're following what it is that, that brings you alive, it's, it's a good hint at where you need to be and where your, your gift is, but it's not always going to be easy. That's the hard part. And I've worked with Michael for years in, in retreats with men or with men and women and lots of the men's work, starting with Robert Bly and Michael and James Hillman and so forth, much informed by Joseph Campbell as well. Michael would drum and tell stories and people would get captivated. Oh, this is an ancient story from Africa or the Mayan or the Tibetan but it actually speaks to who I am. It opens and to who we are in, in this moment. And then he would tell this long story and he'd say, where are you in the story? You know, you hear this long adventure story and obstacles come and you overcome. And he'd say, all right, find your place in the story because it's not just a big story, but you're somewhere in there. And people would speak and you'd hear, oh, okay, it's a story about a dragon. I've just sighted the dragon's cave, or I've seen it and I'm terrified, or whatever. Or the dragon and I are, are sitting, um, deciding whether we're going to have combat or whether we're going to be friends or not. Meanwhile, that person is actually talking about his incredibly destructive and alcoholic father-in-law. And is he going to have any relationship to this person who also has all the money in the family? So that the, the grandeur of the myth and the, the nitty-gritty of that person's life somehow meet together. And one of the Buddhist myths that's, it's the most central myth in the Buddhist canon um, is the myth of his awakening, that he went out and he did all these austerities. And finally he realized that he had to find a more middle way balance and sat under the Bodhi tree to the night of his enlightenment. But the part that's relevant to note here is that the Indian God named Mara and Mara is the name for all the destructive forces of consciousness, greed, hatred, fear, ignorance, and so forth, appeared as the Buddha was seated under the tree, quietly opening himself to the mystery to find enlightenment. And Mara comes and says, no, you don't. First, Mara comes with temptation here and, and brings the most beautiful, the daughters of Mara, the most beautiful sensual experiences you could imagine, saying, plus which you could have a golden chariot and you could have anything you want. 
And the Buddha sat there and said, what I want is enlightenment, thank you, and I'll pass. And Mara said, that's not enough. And so then he brought out the armies of Mara. And the armies of Mara were all the forces of aggression and violence and began to attack the Buddha to, to rouse his own hatred with spears and arrows. And the paintings show the Buddha touching each flaming arrow with a little line from his heart to his fingertips, touching each one with compassion, and they turn into flower petals and fall at his feet. And then Mara says, all right, you know, you think you know what you're doing, but you don't. By what right do you think you could get enlightened? And Mara comes in the form of doubt, which we all have in our life. Just as there's greed and just as there's hatred, there's doubt. And the Buddha sits quietly and then takes a hand and reaches down and touches the earth. And it's a really beautiful gesture because he calls upon the feminine. It's not like I'm the macho guy who can do this. Mother Earth, will you witness not only my own dedication and intention for so long, but will you be the witness to the fact that we human beings can awaken? And Mother Earth rose as a fountain and washed away the armies of Mara. And then the morning star arose and the Buddha got enlightened and everything was happily ever after for a short period of time because it doesn't ever. But there are two really important things. The reason I'm telling this story beside that it's so central and it's really about how myth can and stories can operate. When I teach or when I work as a psychologist and a therapist and so forth, People will come and they'll say, oh, God, I have so much doubt or, oh, I just get so angry and I get carried away. It turns out that in the Buddhist texts, Mara doesn't go away after that night. He comes back 40 more times. And what the Buddha does when Mara reappears with doubt or frustration or anger, the Buddha says, oh, is that you, Mara? I see you, Mara. And the minute the Buddha says, I see you, Mara, Mara kind of nods and turns and goes away. And when people are facing their own demons and the, the, uh, these forces, because I say the thing about Mara is he gets around. Whenever you sit in meditation, it's not just India 2,500 years ago. Mara's like, they're waiting for you. Okay, here's your temptations. Here's the things you're angry and upset. Here's the things you, you, know, you want and so forth. Here's the doubt, self-doubt, and, and so forth. Tamara appears. And the beautiful thing about the story is that you can tell people, it's not personal. It's not you. This is, uh, this is the doubt that's part of being a human being. And when you can say, oh, Mara, I see you. Is that you, Mara? Thich Nhat Hanh even says, once in a while, invite Mara in for tea, have a little conversation. Don't have him. Stay too long. Have a little connection. But people then step out of the small sense of something wrong with me and realize, oh, this is the great dance of human incarnation. Joy and sorrow and praise and blame and gain and loss and contraction and opening. And we can become the loving awareness that says, oh, I see you, Mara. I see this. And who I am is so much greater than that. That was beautiful, Jack. Thank you. And it's such a perfect example of of how these these big stories can take us out of our small self and can open us to to what you call the dance so um beautiful i, I have one more question for you sure 
So Joe used to like to tell a story about people going to the circus. And he would say that the, the circus had a really hard time getting spectators out of the tent that they used to call the, the freak show. I'm not sure what, what we would call that tent now, but uh, people would gather in that tent and they were so entertained by what they saw that they wouldn't leave. So the circus had the idea of putting a sign by the door that said to the grand egress and people were intrigued by what the grand egress was. And so it helped to get them out the door. And Joe was using this story to emphasize that myths are often used in this pedagogical way to help get us out the door, to help us to be open and accepting of the knowledge that life is inevitably full of loss and that we're going to die. And we don't necessarily have this many helpful stories and rituals these days. And uh, death has become something that we generally turn away from because we don't have a good way to embrace it or understand it. And in Buddhism, the teaching of impermanence is fundamental to this. So how does the teaching of impermanence help us to experience life more fully and to embrace the inevitability of death and loss? Well, I think people were in that, what was called the freak show, not just by being entertained, they were also horrified. And it was like they were looking at the things that they most feared. What if I were disfigured in that way? Or what if I, whatever the particular thing is, how, sure. how would I live? So it also touched that very deep human fear that I don't belong, that I'm the freak in some fashion or other, just to kind of reframe that a little. So to try to bring your question together with death, Joseph Campbell, Michael Mead, we were just talking about, and other things I'll tell a, a little story or an event. So Michael and Luis Rodriguez, who's this wonderful revolutionary Chicano poet, he was the poet laureate of Los Angeles in the last couple of years ago, and a big partner in teaching with, with Michael Mead and with uh, James Hillman and myself and others. And fantastic. Anyway, so we were doing an event with young men who are coming out of street gangs because Michael and Luis especially have been working in juvenile halls and prisons and, and so forth. And so here we are in this place and there's a whole bunch of young guys who kind of, they came with their mentors and vaguely interested in what's happening. And they're sitting there with their hats back or their hoods up and it's like, we're going to read some poems and tell some stories. Michael has a story. And one guy says, man, you don't get it. You're going to give us some lame poetry, read us a story. And we're out on the streets and people got nine millimeters and, and you're giving us a poem? You got to do better than that. So we say we can't even begin to tell a poem or a story because there's too many beings here with us who haven't been recognized would you go out in the parking lot and pick up a stone for every young person you know who's been killed and we lit a candle and put it on the table just one single candle and when you come in then place the stones by the candle and simply say their name and some of these kids came back with their hands full of stones no young person should know that many dead people honestly 
And they say, this is for Tito, and this is for RJ, and this is for Homegirl, and this is for, and they'd start to put these down, Mario. And by the time they were done, five minutes, 10 minutes, the candle was surrounded by stones. They sat back down, the hoods came off, the hats came off, the eyes opened. It's like, oh, this is a place we can tell the truth, you know? And then Luis read a poem that was like a great poet, opens a vein and the blood pours out. He read a poem of being on the streets in LA and the gang fights and so forth. And I went, wow, you can say that man, poetry. And all of a sudden the conversation that was the soul conversation. How are you surviving this when the people you love were killed? You might be, how are you living? What are your values? What do you want to make of your life? Do you think it's too short? That it's just going to end? Because a lot of them didn't think they'd live past age 19. What would a vision be beyond that? you know, if you could do anything. So the story and the myth and the ritual actually come together. In a way, all of them are gateways back to whatever Michael Mead talked about, the world so Joseph Campbell talked about, the, the Stan Groff talks about the cosmic mystery or whatever word you want to use for it. A line from a poet, and I wish I could remember who I wrote it down years ago, I'm moving at tremendous speed toward a star in the Milky Way. My heart's a little fast, otherwise everything is fine. And so take that heartbreaking scene with these kids, the gang kids and the ocean of tears and the unbearable beauty of life, they're all here. And we're all turning in the Milky Way galaxy at the same time together. And the beautiful thing is that the mind can open and the heart is big enough to hold it all, that that's your birthright. The great heart of compassion is born in you and it's possible for you and for us. So. Thank you, Jack. I want to end with uh, one of my favorite Campbell quotes. So he said, if you really want to help this world, what you'll have to teach is how to live in it. And that no one can do who has not themselves learned how to live in the joyful sorrow and sorrowful joy of the knowledge of life as it is. I chose the quote because it's something that I aspire to live up to. And I really chose it because it's exactly what you are doing in this world every day. So I, I just want to thank you for your dedication and curiosity of learning about life, its joys and its sorrows, and for your dedication to teaching us all how to awaken to what it is to live fully in the world. Uh, I'm, I'm very grateful and appreciative for, for what you do, Jack. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Tyler. And it makes me think of a moment. We were at a big meeting that I was helping to run with the Dalai Lama and his various Buddhist teachers. And somebody was talking about how you become a teacher. Um, and the Dalai Lama got quiet. He says, you know, no one can make you a teacher. He said, even I, Dalai Lama, if I bless you and say you are now a teacher, he said, only one thing can make you a teacher. If student come and ask, tell me something, we are in this dance together. You know, I don't, it's not like, I love what you said. And in a way we bring out things from one another. Your questions are so beautiful. and the work of the Campbell Foundation to carry on the myth, the mythic way of seeing the world is, is really important. So thank you too. I return 
the thanks. And uh, it's been a pleasure. Take it's care. been an honor, honor and a pleasure, Jack. Thank All you right. so much. Mm. Don't you deeply appreciate how Jack honors the different ways that we connect with the transcendent? Some of us connect with our minds. Others of us connect with our bodies. Regardless, as Jack said, it all speaks to some place within ourselves that is so much larger than the small separate self. Indeed, we are all part of that great mystery that Joseph Campbell illuminated in his work and that individuals like Jack continue to point us toward. In the hustle and bustle of our lives, it's so easy to forget that connection that we have. But in those moments of pause, in those moments of silence, in those moments of contemplation, and even in those moments of utter chaos, we can be reminded and remember who we are. We can sense that link that connects us to the beautiful mystery that grounds our very being. Next time on the podcast with a thousand faces, we welcome Sebastian Siegel. Sebastian is a filmmaker born in Oxford, England, the son of an Indian religions professor and an acclaimed writer. Siegel had an encounter with Joseph Campbell at a young age that continues to echo throughout his prolific work. Next time on the podcast with a thousand faces, we'll see you then. The podcast with a thousand faces is a production of the Joseph Campbell foundation. It is produced by John Booker, Ilya Smirnoff, and Tyler Lapkin. Executive producer, Robert Walter. All music exclusively provided by APM Music. For more podcasts and information about Joseph Campbell, please visit jcf.org.